What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Meeting Mental Health Podcast. This is episode 23. As always, I'm your host, Tiffany, and this week's episode is going to be slightly different. Um, I don't have a wonderful, like, tragedy triumph story for you, but instead I'm going to be bringing you something else I thought you might find entertaining. Um, I was browsing through this uh, Psychology Today magazine, and I came across an article that I found pretty interesting, so I'm going to share it with you. And today I'll be going over 10 myths about the mind. Um, and as you know, you know, I'm, I'm all about education, and learning new things and sharing what I've learned. So I hope you can find these myths as uh, interesting as I did. And for those of you who may not know, Psychology Today is a bi-monthly publication that centers around psychology and human behavior. Uh, The magazine made its debut back in 1967, so they've been around for a while. They cover a wide range of topics written by psychologists and psychiatrists, social workers, doctors, and science journalists. And lucky for me, I have a live-in social worker and therapist who just so happens to have a subscription. So my coffee table is overflowing with a plethora of magazines. And, uh, you know, I always have these cool articles at my disposal. And this is in no way like a plug or an ad or anything for psychology today. But if there is anyone out there looking for a therapist in their area, Psychology Today does have a website that you can browse to help guide you in your search. Um, You know, you plug in your location, you add your filters, and you just reach out to whoever you might feel might be a good fit for you. And then, boom, you just get started on your therapy journey. It's really that easy. Well, now I actually do sound a commercial for this company. So let's dive into the 10 myths of the mind, shall we? This article was written by Matt Houston, who is a senior editor at Psychology Today and has also written for Philadelphia Inquirer and other publications as well. So if uh, at any point you disagree with any of these myths, take it up with old Matty boy. And uh, these are in no particular order. There's no rhyme or reason here, but I will be counting down because why not? It's more fun and more suspenseful that way. All right, let's get to it. Starting at number 10, we're going to be talking about attachment style. Now, right off the bat, I'm leery about this Matt guy because I did, however, do an entire episode dedicated to attachment types, but I'm willing to hear him out. So he says that the early interactions with parents don't critically determine how people relate to others as adults. Um, It is acknowledged that not everyone has an easy time, you know, getting close to people, whether it's romantically or having trust or even confiding or relying for others for support. And for obvious reasons, people are prone to anxiety about how much they can trust others. Psychologists tend to use the term attachment style when describing the varying degrees of avoidance or anxiety in relationships and whether they're secure or insecure. However, the connection between how one is raised as a child and how one turns out as an adult isn't really that clear cut. Jay Belsky, who is a researcher of child development at the University of California, Davis, says that people think of attachment in some ways as an inoculation. 
you know, if you're secure or insecure as an infant or a toddler, then that sets up things for the rest of your life. And according to Jay, that's an exaggeration. Uh, Belsky goes on to say that early relationships could have a developmental legacy, but it depends on what follows. He paints a pretty good picture to, to support this theory in using the example of a child who starts off, you know, insecure, but then along the way encounters teachers who are supportive, caring, patient, and attentive, perhaps all these things that they didn't receive at home. And those sorts of experience can sort of help to reshape the internal working model and how a person may perceive or think about and even respond to the world. So all in all, there are a lot of different factors and moving parts when it comes to who we are or who we become as adults. And it's not just based on how our relationship was with our parents. Number nine on the list talks about the five stages of grief. And if you are familiar with the five stages of grief and if you're not familiar this is what they are uh they are denial anger bargaining depression and finally acceptance but this article states that people do not grieve in a set sort of like predictable manner um and personally i feel this one doesn't need much much myth busting you know i think it would be unfair and unrealistic to say that everyone deals with grieving in exactly the same way or exactly the same order and the originator of the five stages, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who used them to describe how terminally ill patients anticipated their own death, said that the stages had been very misunderstood. She noted that not everyone experiences all of the stages or in the same order. And obviously, like I said, all people are going to grieve differently. You know, some recover more easily than others, which there's nothing wrong with that. And others may take weeks, months, or even years. But at the end of the day, ultimately, there is no right or wrong way to grieve. And at number eight on the list of myths, we have the depression gene. And although most of us who do suffer from depression would love to have something to blame or point the finger at for the direct cause of it, they say that there is no single gene for depression, schizophrenia, or any other psychiatric disorder. Now, that's not to say that these disorders are not to some degree, you know, determined by genetics. Kevin Mitchell, a neurogeneticist at Trinity College Dublin, says you have a much higher risk of having depression if you have a sibling or a parent with depression. And the same is true for schizophrenia and, and all psychiatric conditions. However, since the 1990s, research has been done to identify specific genes that do have a major influence on a person's risk for mental disorders, but have failed to produce significant evidence that any single common genetic variant matters when it comes to mental illness. As with anything else, there are a multitude of factors that come into play when determining someone's predisposition to these conditions. Uh, Mitchell says that people may be at a higher risk due to gene uh, mutations, but the effects are modified by the, by the hundreds of thousands of gene variants, but to different degrees in each individual. So that being said, the whole structure of our genetics is highly super complex and unfortunately it is not the direct cause and effect for our mental health or our mental illnesses. 
Number seven might be a topic that's left up for discussion, but I'll let you guys decide. Um, Here they discuss the differences in the male and female brains. So some tend to believe that the brains of males and females operate in much of the same or equal way. You know, um, many, including psychologists, even argue that the brains and behavior amongst males and females reflect no significant differences. I'm going to have to disagree with that. You know, this article does debunk that myth, stating that the brains and minds of men and women do differ and in very important ways. Uh, It states that women tend to rate higher on measures of empathy, which is no surprise there. Not to say that men are not empathetic. It's just that women tend to be slightly more empathetic. Uh, Men on average tend to score higher or perform better with tasks relating to mentally positioning an object and women better on the object's location. Men are more likely to be diagnosed with autism while women rate higher for mood disorders and Alzheimer's disease. Virginia Tech neuroscientist Georgia Hodes found that boys and girls, adolescents, had different responses to experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. Girls tended to internalize, while boys had a much more outwardly expression, including being disruptive. They believe that it's important to note these differences when it comes to the male and female brain work, especially when it comes to medication, because research has shown that drugs tested on male animals won't necessarily work on their female counterparts. In at number six is the 10,000 hours of practice myth. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this one, but back in 2008, a guy by the name of Maxwell Gladwell, sounds made up if you ask me, wrote a book claiming that in order to achieve success or to master a skill, whether it's a sport, a musical instrument, or learning a specific subject, 10,000 hours of practice is required to become an expert. However, there are a number of articles, not just this one, that do debunk this myth. They state that his theory has many flaws in it, one being that not everyone practices the same. It's the quality over quantity factor that comes into play here. Deliberate practice alone will not make anyone an expert. And deliberate practice alone only accounts for 20 to 25% success rate or performance differences. Psychologist Brooke McNamara has examined more than 80 studies on the topic and says that practice is almost always important, but it doesn't account for everything. There are other important factors to consider as well, such as the age when someone starts learning the skill, the kind of training being done, whether or not you have a coach, and your working memory capacity. And um, I can attest to that one. You know, with the way my brain's been working recently and operating these days, I don't think any amount of practice in any subject will make me an expert. All right, folks, we're halfway through the list here, so let's jump right into number five. Speaking of intelligence, there is a myth that there are multiple intelligence versus just general intelligence. So back in the 80s, psychologist Howard Gardner tried to implement that there were multiple intelligences. Uh, eight to be exact, including linguistic, uh, spatial, interpersonal, and musical. 
However, the theory was not based on experimental evidence and couldn't be proven in either way. But general intelligence and mental abilities can be analyzed on different cognitive tests, and typically one who scores relatively high on one tends to score high on the others as well. But I'm sort of torn with this one, because I feel like unless you're like a savant, being like intelligent in just one area or one category doesn't really hold true for most. But at the same time, just because someone excels in one subject doesn't necessarily mean that they're automatically going to excel in another one. So I don't know. I'm going to have to keep doing some research on that one. Keeping up with the theme of learning, number four on the list refers to learning styles. And I know some of us have all said it at one point or another. You know, I'm more of a visual learner. I know I definitely have said it. Well, according to this article, although people may prefer one method over the other, tailoring education to visual learners or auditory learners doesn't make sense. Scientific reviews on this subject have found little justification for it. Researchers say that this myth could hinder learning when people think that they're limited to being able to learn in a certain way over another. Or even worse, people may not try to learn something new because they don't think it matches how their brain works. Um, and I'm guilty of this as well. You know, I'm like, I'm more of a visual learner. I need to see it down on paper. So... I I definitely hear where they're coming from, and you could definitely hold yourself back. Um, And while they do acknowledge that people do differ in abilities and the manner of teaching can make a difference, they also suggest that teaching in a mixed variety or a combination of words and visuals as opposed to one style is far more successful. I had this one teacher back in middle school who really messed me up, man. This math guy, he did the same exact thing every single day. He just handed us a worksheet. He said, here you go. We didn't learn nothing on the chalkboard. His chalkboard was clean as a whistle. And then at the end of the day, we just, he would hand, go over it. Next thing you know, we had homework. Next thing you know, we have a test. Bro, I don't learn that way, man. That guy held me back. Anyway. All right, we made it to the top three. Here we go. In at number three is the ever popular myth of the left brain or right brain myth. Um, The popular belief is that right brain people are more intuitive thinkers and left brain people tend to be more analytical thinkers. But the truth is, is that we do not have dominant brain hemispheres. Although the right and left hemispheres do have different mental functions, the idea that we use one side of our brain versus the other based on the way we think really takes away from the complexity of the brain and how it works all together. Uh, neuroscientist Stephen Costland says that the best documented differences tend to be subtle. He says that in the myth, the left facilitates language and the right deals with perception. However, language is distributed across the hemispheres. Likewise, perception also involves both sides of the brain. So, although we have two sides of our brain and we might be dominant with one of our hands, unfortunately, there is no correlation when it comes to left and right-brained thinkers, and this myth has been busted.
In at number two is an interesting myth, and I've never known it to be a myth, but apparently it is. The article says that sex addiction is a myth. Interesting. So the term sex addiction is not found in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. The World Health Organization added compulsive sexual behavior disorder, but does not use the word addiction. So the reasoning behind that is that whether a habit can fit into the category of addiction is based on a criteria of six. According to psychologist Mark Griffiths, the habit is used to modify one's mood, consume one's thoughts, and present a clear interpersonal conflict. He says that addiction also leads to biological tolerances, so the habit needs to be increased over time to achieve the same effect, and withdrawals are present, as well as a risk for relapse. Griffith says, with regard to sexual behavior, the number of people who would actually reach all of my criteria are few and far between. He says that people are engaged in problematic behaviors versus an addictive behavior. Fascinating. Uh, They also say that cause for cheating should not be linked to sexual addiction as it is being used as an excuse. So there you have it. Don't cheat and uh, you don't have anything to blame. All right, here we go. We have reached number one on the list. The number one myth on the list of myths is something that I hear a lot of parents point the finger at when describing their kids' personalities. You see it a lot on like TikTok and uh, tell me this is your first child without telling me this is your first child, you know? And that is birth order. So you're the firstborn, you're the youngest or an only child. Personality is not shaped by it. And there is no doubt that even some psychologists have argued that the order in which children are born have a lasting effect on who they become. Unfortunately, testing of these theories have yielded little to no evidence to back these theories up. Um, Data analyzed from thousands of people in 2015 found no significant correlation between birth order and other traits. You know, we all think of the older child as being more responsible and the younger child as being more rebellious. But psychologist Brent Roberts says we must take into account for what older and younger siblings are each like at the same age. So if we're looking at Timmy, who's five, and we're looking at Tommy, who's 10, of course, we're going to say Tommy's more mature than Timmy. But let's think about how Tommy was when he was Timmy's age. You know what I mean? Sorry to burst your bubble, moms and dads. Your youngest would have been just as bad even if he was your only child. But uh, there is one birth order discovery that was found that might actually hold some water. And that is that firstborns might have a slightly higher IQ advantage over their younger siblings. So there you go, older siblings out there. At least you have something to brag about. And there you have it, folks. 10 myths of the mind, all debunked for what it's worth. Um, I hope you found it interesting. I like reading little things like this, learning some new things. You know, you never really know what you can and can't believe these days. Um, 
But I hope you enjoyed this slightly different episode. You know, not much personal info on this one, but some fun facts nonetheless. That's all I have for this episode. If you have any comments, questions, uh, please never hesitate to reach out. As always, until we meet next time, thanks for listening and have a great day.